We are naming it and claiming it, and I hope you are naming it and listening right now. Pop culture pastor. All right. I, I'm sorry I don't have the mics from Ted Lasso, Cody. Well, let's think about it. What I'm, I'm having trouble picturing that in my head. I, I do not have any trouble because I just finished the series, so... It's got like a little spit guard on it. Is that, it that has what we're talking about? Like something that like goes up right to you, like your nose, like mustache line, oh, a okay. little flap that overhangs, and like they're holding it, and it just looks cool yeah. and professional. Does it look as cool as Trent Crim from The Independent? Um, almost. <laughs> Um, who is now independent. Yeah. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the pop culture pastor podcast episode number two. It's not in the books yet, but it's going to be in the books the podcast. So nice. We did it twice. Ayo. I'm going to have to come up with a new saying for every one of these. Um, welcome back. Uh, hopefully you've listened to the first, uh, podcast, Maybe this is new for you. Maybe you're listening to this the first time. What you need to know is we're about to talk a lot about pop culture for the next, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. Anything. We don't uh, listen. We're also pastors, so we don't make plans. Yeah. So if Jesus decides to tarry his coming, we will talk about pop culture for the next 45 minutes to an hour. Sounds good. Yeah, God willing. It's all God willing. Yeah. Name it and claim it. We are naming it and claiming it, and I hope you are naming it and listening right now. Uh, if you are welcome, this is the Pop Culture Pastor Podcast. Let's talk about some pop culture. The first thing we do every week is we just go through some news that happened this week. Okay. Some interesting pop culture items. Um, the, the, we're getting closer and closer to the Eternals. The big world premiere happened. Um, so I've gotten mixed... Um, feelings from people out and about mm -hmm. that there some are like oh it looks good and then others are like i don't know what this is about yeah yeah i'm I, like you know i was nervous before guardians of the galaxy came out and i compare eternals to guardians of the galaxy because it's like more of an unknown property in Marvel. So like, you know, yeah. it's not Thor, it's not Captain America, Spider-Man, all of these are known quantities and you know, they're going to have a pop following and you know, people are going to like it. So when guardians of the galaxy was being made, I was like, Ooh, that's interesting because guardians of the galaxy. Like when I was a kid was like a comic back in the eighties. That was very under read, mm -hmm. very weird stories, kind of detached from the Marvel universe at large. Um, in fact, it was in the future, like the original guardians were in the future. Oh, um, so it was just, it's just a weird. And then of course, James Gunn did what he did and allayed all our fears and made a great movie that was fun and obviously largely connected to the MCU. The Eternals are kind of the same. It comes from, so originally a Jack Kirby thing, uh, back in the day. And then in the eighties, kind of another series came out. But again, it's, it's a group that's largely detached from the Marvel Universe at large. And I'm confident that Kevin Feige, you know, now I'm confident enough of him to know that this is going to be connected probably quite a bit. But I still can't help but be a little nervous because now you're getting into. So the Eternals, and, and we talked a little bit about this last week, 
with a woke culture. Mm-hmm. I'm a little nervous that, and, and what we discussed last week is I'm fine with representation. Actually, representation's great. Yeah. Show me different kinds of people. But I, we, we decided that we don't like just doing it to pander. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just don't, don't do it just to do it to sell tickets. Like make, make them real, make them, you know, have real issues and the things that come with, you know, being a different person, you know? Yeah. Humans, we're all different. So, I mean, I worry a little bit about things I've heard with the Eternals. Um, I've worried about it being kind of artsy. You know, Chloe, I, Chloe I, Zhao's kind of like known as a visionary director. I, I, I would say that Marvel's had some of their biggest flops when they've tried to go artsy. I would go first two Thor movies because they were uh, Kenneth Branagh, yeah. um, who's a very Shakespearean kind of dude. Mm-hmm. And the Thor story could be told in that aspect, but people really like uh, Ragnarok a lot better lot better i do because it's a different storytelling i do like ragnarok um but i i did appreciate the first thor i thought the focus on like the family issues the brotherly thing yeah i thought was really you like the the series loki which we all loved doesn't Mm. happen without the first thor that kenneth Branagh did yeah he sets that up well the the tension and it definitely lended itself to kind of a Shakespearean allegory, if you will. But um, the second one was rough. Yeah. I I ignored the second one. (laughs) It was. Yeah. I haven't gone back for repeat viewing um, much on that one, Uh, but it is, there are parts of it like, okay, first of all, anything Darcy's in is just good because of that. I love how she calls Mjolnir yum yum. (laughs) that that is a joke that never gets old with me yum yum (laughs) like i just it's it's a fantastic joke but yeah the story as a whole in the dark world is yeah it's a little rough it's it's widely regarded as the worst mcu movie which i mean it's not you're not saying it's a terrible movie but mcu movies are generally pretty good so it's got a lot to live up to it doesn't quite get there Mm. I go Thor two and Iron Man two for my bottom two. Mm, yeah. Okay. All right. Like so, I I feel I appreciate Iron Man a lot more once there was a lot of team ups happening. Yeah. And like he then uh, took the role of well, I'm Tony Stark and I'm going to kind of house the Avengers and I'm going to like focus on like Avengers initiatives and do we just not include the Incredible Hulk in there? Because I feel like that was a not a great movie. Is it? But is it just because we just don't include it as a whole? Well, I I think that we don't include it because they replace the Hulk. They well, Edward Norton, who was the the Bruce Banner in that movie, yes. was just maybe the worst choice ever. Like you do it because he's a name and he's a respected actor. But the way he played Bruce Banner, everything, I just thought it was just not good. Not good. Mark Ruffalo, I don't, uh, he's not my perfect Bruce Banner, but he's way better than Norton was at getting like the kind of, like Bruce Banner should have idiosyncrasies. Like he's gone through what we would call a ginormous mental, you know, um, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? He should have a lot of um, post traumatic yeah, stress. Yeah, he should have a lot of PTSD. Yeah. And Norton carries with him like in all he does this kind of inner strength. Yeah. Which was kind of all kinds of wrong for Bruce Banner. He definitely had an edge to him. Yeah. Ruffalo's got like Ruffalo plays that inner weakness well. Like yeah. Bruce Banner should be hanging on by a thread most of the time in my opinion. So what if um Edward Norton went more Fight Club Edward Norton? Yeah, maybe getting a fight club where yeah. he definitely doesn't have any self-confidence in Yeah. 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 Like I I don't know. I just thought the whole movie was written in a way that was kind of a, a misstep. So yeah. So if, I would put Incredible Hulk up there with the worst MCU movies. But I know we just kind of ignore it offhand. Yeah. Which kind of you know, kind of backs up the case that it might be the worst Marvel movie. But like when we talk about DC movies, we always like ignore the Dark Knight trilogy because like it's the outlier of the group. Mm-hmm. And technically the universe happens after. Yeah. So. Well, the DC, I mean, DC just messed up everything. <laughs> I mean, like the MCU includes, like the people that made the movies include the Incredible Hulk in the story. Yeah. So it's not like they're saying this is a different universe or whatever. Like it's included in the story. Anyways, we were talking about Eternals. Yeah. And we kind of got launched into this discussion. Um, the, the bottom line is, is I'm nervous about it, but I'm leaning on the fact that Chloe Zhao is an Academy Award winning director. Um, mm-hmm. That Kevin Feige hasn't gone wrong for us yet. That he's controlled this all pretty well, um, and and everything's fit in well. And that Marvel is actually really good at making different kinds of movies that are still in this universe. So we have hope. We do, and and I suspect that it'll be good. Most of the reviews um, you're seeing now from the premieres are good. They're they're very non-specific because people are very wary of spoilers, um, as you should be. But the it, it, it's getting it's getting good, mostly good reviews, and and the people that do have something negative to say, I'm seeing that what it is is there's a lot of exposition. There's almost too much story. There's too much information that has to be passed on here which makes sense because there's there's a lot of eternals yeah and they're all new characters and they all need to be introduced and fleshed out in some way here yeah you can have like a individual eternal movie for each eternal yeah so we're within two weeks though countdowns on it's getting exciting and uh the premiere happened and so some early reviews are coming in uh other news that happened this week home alone lego set um pop culture uh, has a lot of you know iconic places and houses yes um you know i always think of the brady bunch's house kind of that split level 1970s style with the astro turf backyard <laughs> yeah um, but maybe you're like me, Cody, when you were a kid, you wanted to live in the home alone mansion and uh, that thing was a mansion. It was, um, we, we've never had this discussion, but like, what did Kevin's dad do where he could like take his whole family and the uncle nobody liked to Paris, to Paris all over the place. <laughs> and like, yeah, it's just amazing the the backstory that we don't get 
with that family of yeah. like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah. And he's, he's even taking that uncle. Like, listen. No one likes the uncle. Full disclosure. I don't care if you're a beloved uncle. If you t- if you look at my kid and said, "Look what you did, you little jerk," <laughs> we're gonna have words. We're we're gonna have. We're, I'm gonna have a private conversation. Um, your plane <laughs> ticket has been refunded. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, this is a real um, real house that exists in Winnet- Winnetka, Winnetka, Illinois, um, and Lego has put out a set that you can build. The McAllister home from Home Alone, three thousand nine hundred and fifty-five pieces in this Lego set. Oh, sweet Davy Jones locker! That's amazing. Includes mini figures of the the Wet Bandits, Marvin Harry, as it should, along with a screaming Kevin, ah, uh, and Kevin's mom and Old Man Marley. You would have to have Old Man Marley. Yeah, it makes sense. You need him outside, like yeah. shoveling ice, cleaning up the sidewalks randomly. And do they ever explain why he's why he does that um, in the movie? Because he's a nice old man that everyone thinks is cranky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this, it, it, it even has a wall, uh, a Michael Jordan cutout <gasps> piece. <laughs> you have sold me on this because, like, my whole. Like childhood and adult life, I have wanted that cardboard cutout of Michael Jordan <laughs> that he has dancing around the Christmas tree. It's the Lego version, so it's not really cardboard. Um, but it, there's lots of little Easter eggs in the set. Um, Angels with filthy, filthy souls is playing on the TV <laughs> set. Uh, little Nero pizza boxes. There's a bowl of chocolate ice cream, and of course, all sorts of the fun traps, the booby traps that he sets up from the movie. How much does this cost? Um, here's the thing. It doesn't list it in this article, but let's it's be free. honest. It's, it's Lego. It's 4,000 pieces. I'm guessing you're paying upwards of 150 bucks for this. If you want oh, that, but how my cool, heart. how cool of a Christmas decoration would the home alone house in Legos be? Um, so dear you listener, could, you could work it into advent. Like oh. each day we add a few more pieces. Oh Yeah. And uh, this, um, on this day, we we discuss how Jesus was born in the manger. And let's add a few Legos to the <laughs> McAllister house as part of Advent. We can work it in. Oh, yeah. Um, so, dear listener, if you are wondering what gift to give me, I will accept a, a Kevin McAllister Home Alone Lego set. And if you could get it to us early. So Please. we could, you know, work it into our Advent tradition like i think that we could set it up in the (laughs) the radio room window so all downtown could see it each day my mom does this like little you know old person christmas town thing every year (laughs) what if we did a lego christmas town see now now that's cool that seems cool to me yeah we can do that how is there not a lego movie christmas movie that's a missed opportunity. With Chris Pratt and all the characters from Lego movie. How is there not a Christmas movie of that? That's a gold mine they're missing. Yeah. Someone really going to have to get on that. We can switch gears a little bit now. And um, Dune comes out as the day here we're recording. Um, finally. Yeah. Meh. <laughs> so, like, I'm not going to lie. I, I've literally thought this movie came out like a year ago. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, 
oh, it came out uh, like seven months ago. And then like it, I just keep thinking it's come out because I've seen so much or so many clips of it and like announcements for Dune. I, and I, then it yeah. hasn't come out. <laughs> I'm going to watch it. Um, Everyone and their mom is in this movie. Yeah, I'm undecided on whether to talk about it on this podcast. I mean, I suppose we should. It's a sci-fi movie, which is like in our wheelhouse. So I feel like we should watch it and talk about it. And I'll, I'll probably do that. But I'm a product of the 80s, which is bad news for Dune. Because <laughs> this all seems really familiar. An epic movie being made of a beloved but yet kind of dense old science fiction mm-hmm. uh, writings. Um, and the movie being made is, is epic with all these actors in it. And I've seen this before and it wasn't good. <laughs> like spoiler alert. Um, the, the eighties movie is, is well, as it turns out, dense, complex stories don't play out on the screen real well, especially when you're, you're fighting against star Wars, which, you know, back in the eighties, that was a thing. Yeah. And so people like kids like me watched Dune thinking star Wars and what we got was something dense and, you know, by equivalent kind of boring. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised with how epic the story is supposed to be that they didn't do like a short series, like a mini series on Apple TV or Amazon or one of those uh, streaming giants and uh, did it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. To me, Dune seems like it is much better suited for a series. I would agree with that. Because then you can do like story development, character development, kind of explain some of those deeper uh, plots and thoughts going on within the, the book and have it portrayed out on the big screen. Yeah. I, I just don't, I don't understand. I, I don't, I don't get it, but it's got enough people in it. It's, it's, it's got a good director. Um, I'm going to give it a shot. I mean, literally all the actors that they have listed in the trailers sold me on it, but otherwise I'm like, didn't they already make this movie? (laughs) So, yeah. So I'm not going to, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Dune. It might be a future topic. When and if if we see the movie, we might review Dune. Um, Let's go on to the last news item I have for the week till we can, we can get into our main uh, focus of our conversation today, which is going to be Ted Lasso and midnight mass. Um, Steve Rogers, according to the Marvel's director, Nia DaCosta, is the real villain of Infinity War. Okay. So Star-Lord got a lot of the flack. He did. Star-Lord, even Thor, who doesn't aim for the head. Yeah, he gets some of it, yeah. Gets some of the blame. But director Nia DaCosta said she believes that the snap is all Captain America's fault because he chose one robot's life over literally the entire universe. Her full quote says this, something I like to say a bit flippantly about Captain America is that the snap is his fault because he was trying to do his best, trying to do the right thing. And there's a world in which he's a villain because at the end of the day, he should have just sacrificed the vision. He chose one robot's life, albeit a sentient one over literally the entire universe. And there's sort of an anti-hero in that. If you want to look at it through that lens. 
Okay. We like to call this the Batman argument. Okay. <laughs> this is Batman's problem with Superman, right? Yeah. He's unwilling to make the proper sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, sacrifice the one for the many, right? He's unwilling to do that. Yeah. And Captain America, she's like, I don't know. What, I don't know where you're going to go with this, but my opinion is she's kind of right. This is Steve. This is the, the Steve, the flaw with a guy like Steve Rogers. It is. And, um, I mean, it's a l- easy for us to say, yeah, he is the, he is the villain. Uh, but I think a lot of us would get caught up in the connectivity, uh, with someone that we, we know yeah. would, would then try to save that person. Cause then we think, oh, well, if we save them, then maybe we can team up or whatever. No, no. Um, sometimes difficult choices have to be made. Sometimes uh, relationships have to be sacrificed. Um, so often when people who um, have entered into recovery centers, mm-hmm. um, one of the things they're told to do is to cut ties with those individuals that they might've been close with in that previous life. Um, So that way they can have a future. Yeah. And Steve is not willing to cut ties there. Well, and it's obvious why, because Steve's a military guy. Mm -hmm. So this is really interesting juxtaposition here because in the military, you, no one's left behind. Yeah. And they'll sacrifice an entire platoon. You see it in the story of saving private Ryan. Yeah. They'll sacrifice an entire platoon to get that last guy. And logically, to someone like a, a character like Bruce Wayne, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? That that has no, that doesn't dwell in the realm of logic. And I would agree, it doesn't dwell in the realm of logic. Do you know where it dwells in the realm of Cody? Where does it dwell? In the oh, realm it dwells of? in the realm of Jesus. It does. He'll leave the ninety-nine to go after the one. Yes, isn't that beautiful and wonderful? There's something about that that we as humans latch onto and say that's a good thing. So we'll point out that Steve Rogers made a mistake after the fact, yeah. but as he's doing it, we see the hero. We see we the do. heroism in that. Um, and I, in the I, moment, I guess what I'm saying is in the moment when we were all watching infinity war, when Nia DaCosta was watching infinity war, she didn't think that in the moment she thought uh, Steve Rogers was being heroic. Hindsight. It's, it's 20, after the fact. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020. And like in the moment, I'm like, well, this is all Star Lord's fault. <laughs> <laughs> we can all agree on that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, it was. It's. I love. This is the exact kind of thing I love, though. Like, I, I'm not bagging on Nia DaCosta, the director of the Marvels movies that that's coming up, up later. They're filming right now. I think this is the exact kind of discussions that we as nerds and geeks love to have. Um. So. To go off of another podcast, um, Revisionist History, what's the pull the goalie situation for this movie, for that situation? Okay, so we got to give a little background here. We do. Malcolm Gladwell does this wonderful podcast um, where he talks about um, living life essentially by pulling the goalie. Yes, Right. And basically he talks about how he talks to these like statisticians who figured out that the NHL doesn't pull the goalie quickly, quickly enough. 
in certain situations, they were talking about how they should do it. They should pull the goalie in hockey, like 12 minutes left to go in the game for the entire last yeah. period, you know, like, it's it, it was very interesting in that and that in that point defense doesn't matter extra offense is what matters right mm-hmm. that there's just certain situations there and so yeah like this applies to Steve Rogers in this scenario because you're facing a threat that you're the underdog so you got to do things a little bit differently where you got to put all your eggs into the offensive basket understanding the defense won't last long against Thanos yeah. So you pull the goalie in a sense. I like where you're going. I like where your head's at here, Cody. Yeah. <laughs> I like where your head's at. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's all a, offense. It does um, lend itself to that discussion for sure. Um, okay. We're going to take a little break. We are. And when we come back, we will discuss uh, Ted Lasso. Oh, I'm ready for this one. You ready for that? There's so much I have to talk about, like questions, thoughts, because it's all fresh in my head. Fantastic. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back. We're here, and now we're going to talk about the main things uh, that we set out to talk about here in this week's podcast first and foremost um well we're going to talk about midnight mass later okay uh but right now we'll talk about apple tv's ted lasso led tasso (laughs) no not led tasso (laughs) i don't need you to bend down and touch your meat fingers um no ted lasso which is the story of um a american football coach Coaches Wichita State, which is a mythical Wichita State. We were from Kansas. Yes. So they, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to understand that Cody and I live in Kansas and we're born and raised here. And no Wichita State athletics. Yeah. And so Wichita State doesn't have a football team. No. So immediately this is kind of a fun thing for us. Yes. Because we can pretend. So Ted Lasso has won a Division Two championship. Way to go, Ted. With Wichita State football. And he does his wonderful Jason Sudeikis dance <laughs> at the beginning of Ted Lasso. And he, we find out very early on that he has been hired to coach a Premier League soccer team. Upper echelon soccer. Yeah. And so there's a little there's a little goof early on where it's a sports center clip and they're kind of making fun of that. Everyone's like everyone's um, realizing the elephant in the room, which is why would you do that? Why would you hire someone? Um, They're two separate sports. Yeah. He's basically hired because the woman who owns the team now who got it in a recent divorce is trying to get back at her ex by tanking the team. Sabotage. Yeah. Of and the that's, finest. that's where this story starts. Now, obviously we're going to get into some spoilers here. So if you have not seen Ted Lasso, and you're and, missing and out. do not want to be spoiled. You probably should Fast stop forward. listening <laughs> right now because um, we are going to spoil some things. A lot of things. All the things, maybe. So Ted Lasso as a series drops right in the middle of like kind of the first malaise of COVID-19 lockdowns and mm-hmm. the pandemic at a time when people's mental health was taking its first big hit. And this series drops at the perfect time, in my opinion, to to hit us in a psyche, because largely this is a show that's so 
cheerful. Ted Lasso is impossibly cheerful. And it is very much impossibly is the right word because you find out later on that he's yeah. not internally. He's not that it's a front. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's impossibly cheerful. And the movie, the show is just so sweet. It's just a sweet show. And there's aside from it being really, really funny. This show has a lot of heart and charm and it has an extra bonus in it for people like us who live in Kansas. Yeah. Because Ted Lasso is also impossibly Kansan. Super Kansan. When you, I know people, people are, who are listening to this podcast, listening to us talk, who don't live in Kansas, never been to Kansas, don't know anyone in Kansas. You're going to think this is weird, but Ted Lasso, there's like people all over Kansas that are like that guy. Oh yeah. And they, they say corny things. They're impossibly happy. All, at least on the outside all like, the time. Literally the first episode, um, after, uh, Nate introduces himself to Ted and Ted's like, Nate, the great. And I'm like, I do that. Yeah. Everyone does that. <laughs> that is a Kansas thing. We give yeah. you nicknames. We act like we've been best friends forever. Even right after we just met you. Yes. We will stand and hold the door open for someone who is literally 30 seconds away from going through that door. It's really awkward. It is awkward because then they feel like this, like, do I speed up to make them not hold the door as long? That's a Kansas thing, man. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, we say Ope a lot. And so like, just getting into this TV show initially was such a pleasure yeah. for, for people who live in Kansas and know people like this and see the charm in that. Um, it was amazing to see on the big screen and Jason Sudeikis being from Kansas obviously understands that now as the show goes on, you understand that what looks like a sitcom on the surface and has is funny and has all this charm and cheerfulness that all these characters are, deeply flawed and scarred in ways oh yeah and this is also what's so endearing about it because yeah we know that a lot of the people that are like ted lasso here in kansas that have this cheerfulness exterior it is covering up some hurts and so this show is wonderful it's a wonderful look at like real humanity in a lot of ways like you you work in the mental health field like how, how would you rate this show how they do on mental health issues um really good because like knowing people that are like ted where it's just overly bubbly all the time uh trying to make things seem super positive usually there's something that they are trying to compensate for and usually it falls apart mm-hmm. at some point and we see it with Ted with his panic attacks. And then you start to unravel why it is the way he is. And with uh, his family history, uh, not just um, his wife and kids, but like his uh, young childhood, early adult years. So yeah. um, it it's good that way. And um, I mean, you see it with the soccer players, Um, you see it with Nate's character as well. So a lot of a good, honest depictions of Mm -hmm. that. And um, I even love how they attack like uh, social issues. Um, When um, Sam finds out that the, the company that sponsors the team is the one that's not cleaning up uh, an oil spill. 
in his home of Nigeria. In Sam yes. Obasanya. Yes, Sam might be my favorite character on the show. Oh, he's he's got a heart of pure gold. Yes, love Sam. Um, and like you see the text message his dad sends, and it like breaks your heart because mm-hmm. you can tell Sam's extremely heartbroken, and like. Um, Ted doesn't take on the task of explaining why the team does it. He leaves that to Sam and Sam doesn't take on the task of explaining the sports game. He just says, this is why we did it. I'm here to talk about this issue. This is really all I'm going to talk about. And then we'll move on to our next match. Yeah. Um, This largely is a show you bring up Sam Obasanya and there's just that that's just one little episode. It's just a little oh, yeah. sub storyline in one episode that deals with his father back in Nigeria being disappointed with Sam. Um, but between him, between the problems that Nate has with a father that's really damaged him. Yeah. Um, where he has an unloving father, the, the, the issues that Ted has where he has this one really bad scarring, mentally scarring event that involves his father yes. that has shaped his life. You realize this is a show about fathers and sons and, um, Jamie Tart. Jamie Tart, yes. yes. Also, there's a father-son plotline that plays out there where the father has damaged the son. And even to some extent, it's explored in an uncle-niece relationship with Roy Kent and his niece, who he dearly yes. loves, but the niece is getting in trouble at school because she's cursing. Yes. And Roy Kent curses a lot and freely in front of her. And um, we even see some issues, uh, father-daughter relationships uh, during the episode uh, where Rebecca's dad dies. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So the funeral episode. Yeah. Great episode. This is largely so. When we say that soccer is a main part of the show, understand it's not anywhere near the focus. It is simply a background. This is simply an environment that this is all taking place in. Yes. And and if it sounds like there's some heavy things going on here, it's because there is. But you never feel like you're watching something heavy. You you laugh. You're laughing so much. And these characters are so wonderful in that way that you're laughing with them. But when you, you will cry with them. I've um, cried at this show more than I've cried at This Is Us. So... <laughs> I, for the first time during this show, I got really choked up during the funeral episode Mm -hmm. uh, when Ted's talking to the therapist. Yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, he's gone through something very traumatic, but the difference is, it's like, I will cry in an episode of Ted Lasso, but I don't have that heavy feeling after I'm done watching. Yeah. Like I'll describe that. Like after I watched Titanic for the first time and I cried at the end of Titanic, I'm not ashamed. (laughs) <laughs> I felt a heaviness as I walked out of the theater. Like yeah. there was just something about that ending. That's just like, Oh, so many people died. And like, this is us as a TV show. That's popular. Often you'll cry at watching that show and you'll feel a heaviness. Um, so religious movie that did that, but it blew up in pop culture. Uh, the passion of the Christ. Like, yes. Oh my goodness. Like everyone left like sobbing and heavy. Like yeah. after that, but there's something about Ted Lasso where I will cry at an episode, but I never feel heaviness after watching it. Yeah. They've done something that's really quite amazing with this, this show, which is to say that, yeah, we go through bad things that affect us, but that there's something beautiful about this in our humanity. 
right? Mm-hmm. And I can't really fully explain that other than to just say that I just don't feel heavy, even though I'm I'm empathizing with these characters. Yeah, and I I think it's because you see that even the most beloved of us that seem to have it all going uh, great have struggles, but yet they're trying to make the best out of life situations and that there is a hope and um, that when your father lets you down, there's this figure that's here to support you. Cause like um, after uh, Richmond loses to uh, man city the second time and Jamie Tart's dad like comes in the locker room belligerent and is uh, trashing the team and trashing Jamie and they kick him out, you see Roy go up and just give him a big hug. Who are like mortal enemies oh, in they the show are, up to this point. They like cannot stand each other, and he has that like breakthrough of, hey, I'm yeah, the, here for you. There's a breakthrough of masculine caring going on in that moment where yeah. Jamie Tart has, in one sense, lost a father figure, but gained Another one in Roy Kent, who's an older mentor figure yes. for him going forward, you assume. And all of that overflows Ted Lasso, who has to leave the locker room. Mm-hmm. He starts having a panic attack. He's overcome with what he's lost. Yeah. It's, it's, the, the show is just gloriously beautiful. So many layers. Yeah. And the, and the amazing thing is, is it's wrapped up in this exterior that you think it's a sitcom at first. But you quickly find out, and I have gone back and I've started rewatching this for the third time through. It's right away. They did you know the first time? Um, so when Ted Lasso is meeting the media for the first time, you're ten minutes into the first episode. Yeah, they play the noise that happens later on when he starts having his panic attacks. Oh. It's the same sound effects. So all of this is deeply layered into the show from the beginning. And it looks like it's a sitcom at first, but it's not They're They're, they're going much deeper into these characters and it's wonderfully done. Beautifully done. Okay. And yeah, that that's amazing. The, the level of nuance and foreshadowing that you don't realize at first until like you go back for yeah. a rewatch um, with, but so the funeral episode has a lot of key things that happen. Mm-hmm. And there's two characters that, so this goes back to the, the pastor side of the pop culture pastor um, that I would say are not perfect representations, but are decent representations of like God and the devil, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, like, I'm going to say Rebecca's mom is a good representation of God. Because um, at the beginning, when you first meet her, she says, um, when I love, I love forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what I thought of when it, it's funny you mentioned that? Because in that scene, when she's talking about that, it's like, love hopes for the best, believes the best. Yes. God is love, right? It's, yeah, and, that's a good distinction and like so like her husband um rebecca's dad and the mom like they kind of have these issues but mom always goes back because mom loves forever mom wants that relationship mom uh desires that relationship and at the funeral of the dad um 
Rebecca says, like, admits that I knew dad was cheating on you and that's why I couldn't be close to dad. And mom says, yeah, I knew it. And then Rebecca's like, well, I hate you if you knew it and you stayed. Mm -hmm. And she says something that uh, straight out of the book of Revelation that I would rather you hate me than be indifferent towards me. Mm. That uh, I'd rather you be hot than cold than lukewarm. Yeah. Because if you have those extreme emotions, there is still connectivity there. Yeah. When you're indifferent, you have no connection. It's just whatever. Yeah. And so um, that scene was like very powerful. And then they connect in all's well with mom and daughter. And then for the devil, and you don't realize it until the end of the series, but the end of the second season, it's not the end of the series series, in the the second season. Um, it it's um rebecca's ex-husband because he just plants a seed yeah he doesn't like when christians say oh the devil is constantly out there trying to make you do this or do that Rupert, by the way his name is rupert his name is rupert um i I don't care for him so (laughs) he is nameless to me but i mean he he just plants a little seed it's not like oh here you have to do this and you have to do that no it's just a little Thing that can grow and disrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rupert is a tr- really the only truly evil character in the show. It constantly, like when he's doing good, it is yeah. not because he is wanting to do good. It's because he is trying to sabotage or tear down Rebecca or the yeah. team or something. So, um, when I say that he's, uh, well, first of all, you need to know that there's a story playing out in the background of all this that has to do with the soccer team being relegated to a lower division and fighting to come back up to the Premier League, which doesn't and it's make all secondary. Yeah, which doesn't make sense to most Americans because we yeah. don't. We don't do that sort of thing. But what you need to know is it's all secondary. It doesn't really matter because what really matters is the character stories playing out. Yes. And because I'm saying that Rupert is the only true evil one, it leads us to the last thing we need to talk about here, especially after season two, and that's Nate. Nate the Great. Nate starts off the show, and we immediately recognize him as an underdog. Yeah. And boy, if there, this may be why we get suckered in here, because there's nothing Americans love more than an underdog and someone who's beset upon, right? Oh yeah, we we are in the middle of a time here where we are. I mean, we're all in on victim culture, and so when we see Nate, when we mean Nate, we re, we realize he's super damaged, but we I don't think we realize how damaged, yeah, and what lengths he's going at, what that's going to do to him. Early on, we just see a, a, a hurt a hurt bird, a yes. hurt bird who needs our help. And quite literally, at this point, he is just like the the water boy, essentially, like equipment man. Yes, that's a great that's a yes. great comparison. He's essentially Adam Sandler's the water boy. Yes, and so we want to see him succeed because that's what we're used to seeing in our in our entertainment, right? And as the series goes on, Nate does get in- accepted a little bit. He's included a little bit more. He He's getting into places he wasn't getting to before, and we celebrate that. Yeah. 
But there's these little signs in at the end of season one, going into season two that, Oh, like, and, and we look at it and we go, Oh, Nate, don't do that. No. Remember there's a, there's a scene where he goes to Keely and he says, can you make me famous? Yeah. And, and you, we didn't think much of it, the scene at the time we thought the same thing Keely thought who responds with, Oh, Nate, you don't want that. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I do. I want that. I want to be famous. Like, like we respond like Keely, which is to say like, Oh, little bird little bird which is there's something condescending about that which is as we see is going to be the problem yes because as we go on through season two an ever increasingly bitter and negative nate is emerging and it all has to do with this he into one of maybe one of the greatest heel turns in any tv show or movie ever yeah because season two ends with him standing on the sideline of Rupert's team, who he's just bought a team in the Premier League. Yeah. He's going in what is like a full crossing over to the dark side. And the series, the season ends with the close up of Nate's face, and he's got this smirk and he goes full bad guy. Yeah. Um, from going from shy, awkward, uh, beloved equipment manager to. Hey, he's now a coach. He, and he, he had the winning strategy a couple times. Yes. He gets celebrated for it, and you can see it corrupting him. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of... He makes a pass at Keeley. He does. Who's Roy Kent's girlfriend. Um, like, whenever the Diamond Dogs meet, he always has, like, the negative thing to say real quick. Mm-hmm. And he's Anakin. Yeah, he's Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, absolutely. Like you see the potential for like, oh, he could be our new hope. And then boom. So here's what's so fascinating about this, because in the Star Wars prequels, we knew the outcome of Anakin. We did. We understand he's going to be Darth Vader. So we're just along for the ride. But here it was really interesting because the level of anger after that last episode came out was intense on like Twitter and social media. People were really mad at Nate. They were like, Oh, I can't believe this. Nate is the worst, right? Like yeah. He totally betrays Ted and the team and everybody. And you're, and, and you're sitting here, we're thinking about this and I'm going to say something. First of all, the first thing I'm going to say is like, this was not a shock. Yeah. They lay the seeds of this. I told you I went back and started watching again mm-hmm. the third time through, and I'm paying attention to these things. I mean, from the first episode, from the first time you meet Nate, the very first time you meet Nate, do you remember what it is? Uh, He's yelling at Ted, Ted and Coach Beard as they're the standing on the field. field. Yeah. He's exercising what little authority he has in a harsh way. Yes. And, um, I mean, one of the first times he actually talks to the team, Mm -hmm. it's him roasting like everybody. And he gets way too far into it. Now they take it in good spirits. Why? And this is part of the problem because they're not threatened by Nate. Yeah. That they get into that because a big part of the reason of the final straw is that he makes a pass at Keeley goes to Roy to admit his wrongdoing, which you see the good in Nate, right? Yeah. You see the altruism and Roy plays it off. Like he's not threatened at all. He's like, don't worry about it. 
Yeah. As if to say, I mean, he all but says she'd never go for you. So, and this goes in the background of like who a lot of people thought the original villain was going to be Jamie Tart. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie's had such a character development and swing uh, throughout this show, but um, he made a, he professed his love to Keely like, like the episode before uh, Nate tried to kiss uh, Keely. Mm-hmm. And so like, and he admits it in uh, Roy's brutally upset with him at, at this moment with Jamie Tart until Jamie like admits, Hey, I did this. I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry. I respect both of you. It won't happen again. It That's never what it will says. happen yeah. again. And like Roy's still upset with like how to process it. And then you have Nate the Great. It's like, hey, I did the same thing. Okay, you're good, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 really something. Um, when we go back and you look through and you see this. So now I'm going through this series and I'm paying special attention to Nate. Uh, the first time, remember when he has confusion and he thinks he's about to get fired yeah. by Rebecca and he calls her a shrew? Like he goes, like he just, his demeanor changes in a in a flash and he's like, calls her a shrew. And yeah. it's played for laughs. Like, oh man, he really unleashed when he thought he was getting fired. But there's a, there's a, a change in him that happens so quickly that you're meant to see there. And, um, man, it's so clear. Let's, let's, let's get into this just a little bit here. People were angry with Nate. Now, is it just the, is it just the Christian in me that says, oh, Nate's not evil. He's broken. Oh, and the show does a great job of showing you that. Um, every time he tries to interact with his dad. Oh, it's painful to watch him with his dad. Cause you know, that guy. Yeah. You know the guy who's who whose parents and usually it's a dad where they're just you can't do anything to make him proud of you. Um, and even, you're just it's the one thing you want most in the world. Even when like he's on the back page or the sports page of the newspaper because he came up with the winning play. Oh yeah. And uh dad talks about um humility and <laughs> Like just completely dismisses Nate. They do such a great job in the show. And a lot of the things in season two with Nate, um, it's unheard, it's unseen, or it's not, there's no dialogue in it. Um, but there, there's all these things that, that the actor said were actually scripted. So when he spits on the mirror, yeah. that's the only thing that's unscripted. He did that in the moment and they kept it in the show. And it, it's a big thing. I don't think many people understood the severity of what was happening with Nate until he spits on the mirror when mm. he's looking in it. And there's this, the, it it gives you this level of disgust, like, Oh, that's disgusting. And then you understand he's pointing his disgust at himself. And yeah. you're just like, Oh man, he's really messed up. We've got a big problem. Yeah. Where like he does it after uh, meeting with Rebecca and discussing like how you like, come into a room with confidence and authority and she shows that, Oh, I just make myself big. Yeah. And, and, and to say that everything Nate says at the end of Ted, if you go back and watch, it's true. The only scene solely between just Ted and Nate in season two is that last episode. 
in that scene when Ted's apologizing for snapping at Nate way back in season one, just before Nate delivers the roast in episode seven. It's a Mm. brilliant job by the writers of the show on showing rather than telling just how abandoned Nate is and feels. There's a sense of abandonment. And when you like, okay, so this is going to, I'm going to explain this a little bit. When you have these feelings and it happens, it's happening again, it's magnified. Yeah. So like if you have abandonment issues from your parents, the slightest little bit of abandonment after that is going to feel so much worse. It's magnified for Nate. And maybe the people around him don't understand that because they don't know, they don't know Nate well enough. And maybe that's part of the problem. And we're not sitting here. You're not condoning Nate's behavior. But I think if once you start seeing that season two is full of all these little and, and, and forgive me for using woke culture kind of language here, but it's full of these like kind of microaggressions that people don't even realize yeah. that's what they're doing because they don't understand the hurt that Nate's walking around with. Like you see the empathy with a lot of the characters and their story development and how the team comes around. But Nate always has like this outsider feel to him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and they did a good job of doing that so that it's not smacking you in the face. Yeah. Like you never feel like they're really heavy, heavy on, they're not hitting you over the head with it. But then when you go back and watch it again, you see that the subtle storytelling they're doing is really masterful. And um, I thought Nate's storyline, and by the way, I'm a big, but this also may be the Christian in me, but I'm a believer. And the Kansan in me that, that has faith in Jason Sudeikis telling a story that's actually a sweet one, I think Nate will be redeemed in season three. I think Nate will cut co- will come around to being redeemed in season. I, three. I hope. I'm not going to hold my breath because <laughs> I, I, I think that the heel turn might be he's where he, he's attention seeking, and it's clear that the attention is going to definitely be provided by Rupert, mm. and that. Um, unless there's just like this slight glimmer of hope that he feels towards Ted. Yeah. But I I think this here, here's where we'll leave this, I guess. And, and I'll give you a final thought if you'd like. Um, My final thought on Ted Lasso is that this is maybe the, the best show since lost at character development. They have wonderfully developed this character. They've made a show that is intensely about this character while making it seem about these characters while making it seem like it's not about the characters. Like it's, it seems like it's a funny show, a goofy show, a silly show. It seems like it's about soccer. It seems like it's about all these other things, but really what we're, what we're having, what we see is a show that's intensely about these characters and the, and and their lives in such a sweet and and loving way that even even by the end of season two, there's some of us who can't hate Nate. Yeah, we can't do it. Um, for me, so Ted Lasso, uh, created by Jason Sudeikis and Bill Lawrence, it it feels a lot like Scrubs. Mm-hmm. That on the surface you think it's a show about like uh, interns at a hospital and 
that's just the vehicle that's used to have character development and storylines. And it feels like a sitcom quite a bit, but then you have like these moments of heartbreak and uh, you see character growth. Um, but it's, it's definitely better than scrubs. Although I loved scrubs, loved it, loved it. Um, last thought though, is the coach beard episode fever dream. Like, mm-hmm. Because the whole time I'm like, is this really happening? Is this all in his head? And then finally it's, oh, this is just an evening in the life of Coach Beard. Yeah. It's wonderfully done also, by the way, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, those That show, that episode and the Christmas episode were a product of the new way we do TV, which is to say streaming, where they had a story they were going to tell and the the Apple TV, the network, said, hey, we want two more episodes uh, after they already had the story planned out. Mm-hmm. So they kind of inserted these stories, which don't have an effect largely on the main continuity. Not much. But because this is a, a show about these characters, I adored the Coach Beard episode. The yeah. Christmas episode was good, but I adored the Beard episode. What a great episode that was. It's fantastically weird. Oh, yeah. Just like Coach Beard. It was. It, it, it's wonderful. It was wonderful. Which, um, that character, great. Yeah. Like, he doesn't say much, but like when he does, and just his presence, like yeah. it just carries certain weight. Yeah, the, the juxtaposition of the Kansas native Ted Lasso with Beard, who I think he says he's from Illinois, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and he's just kind of oddball. Like, the, their juxtaposition is always wonderful, and their chemistry as actors is great. They're just wonderful together. Yes. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll, we'll, we'll talk quickly about Midnight Mass, uh, the show on Netflix. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to Pop Culture Pastor. We're going to talk about Midnight Mass. A Netflix original. A Netflix series, a Netflix show here, um, directed by Mike Flanagan, who you might know from House on Haunted Hill. Uh, Some others? Yeah, uh, Haunting of Bly Manor. Yeah. Um, So, like... Each series that he does, it's just a limited series. It's only going to last one season. There's definitely a, a finality to it. That, um, But then he reuses some of these actors in the next series that he does. But they're not connected. But the shows aren't connected. Yeah. And so um, this has quite a few actors from either the first uh, show he did... Uh, Hill House or uh, the second show he did, Bly Manor. And then there's one that's in all three. Yeah. And this fits right in with the current. So we talked on the last podcast very briefly about horror, how it really kind of reshapes its genre from time to time. Yeah. So back in the 80s, horror was about like the one supernatural killer, Jason, Freddy, uh, Michael Myers, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then it, it, with the with, when Scream comes out in like the early 90s, mid 90s, it makes it something different. That's kind of this like Gen X, um, you know, 
laughing at the tropes of the old horror movies type thing. Um, and then it gets into the horror kind of switches into with the, with the ring really makes like this Japanese version of horror. The psychological horror is a much bigger deal. And now finally we're into this kind of version. Oh, there's saws in there too. Yeah. Where it's, it's a lot of like, you know, serial killer torture, you know, that sort of thing, which man, I really hated. Um, now we're into the, the exorcist church based kind of horror. A lot of, um, lot, a lot of, a lot of these horror movies where you see a priest figure prominently. Yeah. Um, although the other two series don't deal with that so much, it's like, yeah, not this guy's. Yeah. But he gets into it here with midnight mass. He Obviously does. there's a heavy, uh, Catholic bent, to this story. And um, by the way, we're about to spoil the nerd out of this. Yeah. You, you've had some time to watch. Yeah. It. So if you do not want to be spoiled, if you want to go watch this and I highly recommend that you would watch this unspoiled. Yes. Because that's how you're going to enjoy it the most. And we'll get into that here in just a couple minutes, but we're about to give you an overview right now. So go away. If you don't want to be spoiled. All right. You're still here. means you want to be spoiled. What we have is an Island that was looks like it's a fishing island of yeah. some sort, um, largely detached from the rest of you, you know American society. Um, this is it, it, it's almost meant to look like it's kind of locked in time. Mm-hmm. Like I wondered if this was a period piece at first, but then as you go along, you realize they have cell phones. Blah blah blah. No, this is just kind of an island that's cut off from the rest of the world. It's like the way they described the Midwest in. Um TV shows that like, oh, you guys are like a decade or two behind. Right. They're a very poor and humble people. Yes. Um, and mostly in the realm of fishing. Mm-hmm. This is their this is their industry there. Anyways, you're introduced to all these characters, um, including um, a, a new father at the church, Father Paul Hill. Yes. Um, and the show does a very good job of setting up these kind of ominous tones. It's very, some in some of Stephen King's best stuff, it's when it takes a long time till you understand what the threat is, right? It, mm-hmm. it builds in just this ominous way where you're just kind of like, I know something's off, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what. Yeah. Um, and this show actually does a very good job for the first few episodes of getting you to this point and like building this, this tension um, you're introduced to who are essentially your couple main characters in um, Aaron green and Riley Flynn, who are kids now adults, but they were kids who grew up on the Island were obviously a thing at yeah. some point. Um, both had moved away and are now back. Yeah. Both have moved away and struggled with life. Um, Riley much more. Yes. So the character of Riley Flynn played by Zach Guilford has, you meet him first. It's clear he's has an alcohol problem because you're introduced to him initially at the scene of a wreck where his female companion has clearly died at Mm -hmm. his hands, at the hands of his drunk driving. And he goes to prison and the story here starts with him coming out of prison and he's clearly a tortured figure. Like he's, he, the, he, he is clearly a tortured figure is not forgiving himself in any way. And in fact, holding himself responsible daily. 
Yeah. He is a sad figure, and he comes back to this kind of sad, poor community that has struggled. There's an oil spill that's taken place at some point in the past that's referred to often that has really harmed this island's, you know, uh, a way, way of way, life. way of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you meet all these people who are down and out, they're older, they're not in great health, all these things. And then you're introduced to this little Catholic church who is missing their regular pastor or they call Monsignor. Yeah. Monsignor is, um, a, a term that is bestowed upon some, yeah, within the the Catholic Church, but not all priests are monsignors. So Father Paul Hill comes in here, played by Hamish Linklater, and he comes in and kind of revitalizes interest in the church and the town um, through some things. Eventually, playing out in the miracle of the daughter of the mayor, who is uh, paralyzed from an accident by the town drunk the island drunk who accidentally shot her some years ago. Yeah. But a miracle plays out in that she gets up and walks in the middle of a service according to his behest. And we find out that what's happening in all of this is that our father, Paul Hill is actually the old Monsignor many, many, many years younger. Yes. Who has come back to them. And it's not until what is it the third or fourth episode that we see his story play out in that he was in Israel. He gets lost in, in on the road to Damascus, a lot of Christian overtones going on here. Yeah. He gets lost, ends up in this cave, taking cover from a sandstorm out in the desert and runs into the word is never said, but clearly a vampire. Yeah. He's clearly a vampire. And the reason they, the choice is made to never use that word is because many people in this town are going to fall victim to the idea that this is an angel. Angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord. He's So his blood is causing miracles. They're all taking communion. They don't know at first, but then when they know, it mass chaos starts happening, right? Oh, yeah. And the truth comes out that this is not a benevolent creature. This is a creature bent on death. And it's um, let let let's. What are your overall thoughts about the show? First of all, before we get to the end. Okay, so I really really liked the show. I liked the way they used the the vampire trope to fit within um, the the Christian imagery uh, of the show because each show uh, episode is titled after a book in the Bible. Usually it has like a loose connectivity to the theme of that book. Mm-hmm. And um, like for me, it's a good commentary on being careful as a Christian um, of what happens when we just get a little off the path and yet we commit to it. Mm-hmm. and how easy it is to go astray. Um, but then, like, the last episode, there's a lot to to break down and to discuss. And so, like, I'll, I'll leave it vague for now. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say this. For about four episodes, I thought this was a good show. I thought it was well-written. I thought it was actually kind of masterfully written. 
But I think it's the end of the fourth episode. Where is that where the episode yeah. where Riley dies at the Spoilers. end of the episode is it's either four or five where he dies and everything that happens after that point makes me realize that this show is actually being carried by the acting mm-hmm. Zach Guilford as Riley Flynn. Like if he goes on to win like Oscars and have an amazing career, people will point back to this show as being like, this is when we realized he had something. Yeah. He was fantastic in this show as Riley Flynn. I just really sold out on this role and, and was immensely believable as just this kind of tortured soul who on the, on the outside, you can tell the, the amazing nuance he puts in this of being like an atheistic character who on the inside, you just kind of intrinsically know wants to believe he yeah. never says it, but you just know he wants to. Well, he talks about when he's in jail or prison that he's uh, constantly reading every world religion book out there. Like Mm. he just is seeking after the truth. Yeah. And so his performance in this show is fantastic. Also, Father Paul Hill, who is also the younger Monsignor. Hamish. Hamish Linklater is also fantastic in this movie. Oh, yeah. He sells it. Now, my problem with, or in this show, my problem with the show starts here. Um, The guy that directed this, McDonald, he gave an interview, which kind of spells out why I think this show goes astray. Uh, Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan is his name. So Mike Flanagan is an atheist who grew up Catholic, went to Mm -hmm. Catholic school, First of all, I find it really interesting that these these guys that grow up Catholic and then go grow up to be Hollywood people or tell these stories, they often want to tell these stories that are atheistic in nature that prove the evil of Christianity, yet they can't do it without being supernatural. Yeah. Think um Kevin Smith with dogma. Like they want to tell this story about the folly of religion and yet they can't do it without acknowledging the presence of the supernatural, right? Yeah. I find that interesting. Uh, But after Riley Flynn's character dies, this show becomes more and more until the last episode, which turns into a full-blown horror trope show. Yeah. Vampire tropes, like people eating other people. Like, it's a mess. Like, in my opinion, this show is an absolute mess. And halfway through the last episode, I'm wondering why. Like, what happened? You were doing such a nuanced, subtle job of telling this story. And by the last episode, things go off the rails, which I understand everything has to climax, right? Everything has to come to this giant ending into the story. And then I get it because the last soliloquy made by uh, the character of Aaron Green played by his wife, uh, Flanagan's wife, Kate Siegel, which is all I'll say about that. (laughs) Um, She delivers this soliloquy that is just redonkulous. It's the ultimate atheist tripe, in my opinion. This like, what I've learned is we're all connected with the universe and blah, 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 blah. This like, uh, this ultimate oneness, this universalism, that in and of itself is kind of a supernatural thing you're talking about. Yeah. But then you're just denying that God's a part of it. Like just to do it because you gotta you gotta win this argument you're making internally. Mike Flanagan, make no mistake, he's making an argument with this entertainment. Yeah. That was the point of it. And he's doing it without the presence of God. Why? So we end up being the God. 
the human mm. being. That's what she says. It's like, I'm eternal in this way. I will go on mixed with stardust, blah, 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 blah. Like it's tripe. It's junk. So the one thing I did like about her soliloquy at the end is she says something about myself. Well, that's the issue is that I've only been thinking about myself. I need to remove myself. It's not about myself. Yeah. And so like at first I'm like, oh, hey, we're, we're on a, a path here that I, I like. Um, and then, um, I mean, I can make an argument that being created in God's image, being um, a part of the, the body of Christ, being a believer in Jesus, that ah, we, we do have this eternal presence, but it's that we get to spend eternity with God, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so like, if you did not know, I think you can go blindly into it if you were a person of faith and be like, oh, well, that, that looks nice. That, that sounds great. Uh, but knowing what his background is and realizing they never say some keywords that would like seal the deal like, oh, this is like a faithful statement. You can clearly see, ah, this is like yeah. the atheist form of it. Well, many atheists out in the real world often are getting the right details. Yes. Okay. So they're like, look, all these Christians, they don't act like Jesus. They're they're not good people. Humans, it's kind of humans suck in a lot of ways. It's when they get to the conclusion that they 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 err. Mm-hmm. So in conclusion, God's not real. Well, wait a minute. What does God have to do with any of this? Yeah. Like you just talked about humans and how we're broken and we're terrible. And you're right. That's the whole point. And throughout the gospels, we see that. Um, but so the, the storyline that intrigued me a lot that concludes ultimately in the last episode is with the sheriff. Um, sheriff that, Hassan, who's a Muslim yeah, yes. in, in, the, in the show, him and, and his son. Um, he talks like, so he, he kind of tries to blend in with the culture that he's in. He tries to not ruffle any feathers. There is, um, a character who is like the most knowingest Christian and holier than thou, uh, character that she doesn't like him because of his faith. Oh Yeah. Yeah, there's the presence of the trope of the the most outwardly Christian one is the most evil one in the whole show, besides the vampire. Yes, <laughs> and um, but so like, he, and then he he tells why he moved to the island, which was um, that after nine eleven there was a lot of issues uh, with being Muslim in in positions of power and authority, and uh, he didn't like that that burden and his wife died and he just wanted his son to live a nice, quiet, peaceful life. Mm. And like he practices his religion in his own home and goes to the mainland when he needs to go to mosque. And so, um, but then his son who goes to the one school that's on the Island, which is heavily influenced by the Catholic church because it is hosted by the Catholic church, Mm. even though it's a public school. 
um, he uh, he starts to want to know more about Jesus, and like Dad's conflicted because he tells this um, story about how the, in the Islam religion Jesus is revered. Mm-hmm. He he's a great figure, um, and but for them the their resting place is with uh, Muhammad, and that that's where he is and like but the son gets more involved in church and eventually comes one of the vampire people <laughs> i love how you said that it's, it seems so normal yes say now uh, well because everyone becomes part yeah. of the vampire people except for a handful yeah spoilers i hope you're not still here if you didn't want spoilers here uh, but like so he does a good job, by the he way. Does the sheriff great, was also very good in his role. Those three, especially, yeah, were really good in their roles. Great job. And then, like, you see the story that he doesn't ever abandon his son. And, like, at the end, he gets shot. Um, and um, he knows his son's going to die when the sun comes up. And, like, they have this moment out on the beach where they're praying together. And, like, the dad dies right before the son comes up, and so he doesn't have to see his son die. Well, like, that part got me choked up, like, oh, no, you can, he's going to see this. You can see the American atheistic tropes in all this, though, can't yes, you? Yes, Because, you can. like, special care is paid to the Muslim characters to show them respectfully while they're just piling on the Christians. Oh right? yeah. Which is fine. I'm a, yeah. I'm a big boy. I'm okay with that. And I understand the motivation that comes from behind that. And a lot of people have been hurt. I get that. Mm-hmm. that this guy that made this story probably has hurts that come from Catholic school. Um, but yeah, there's just, it's, it's so heavy on that in the last episode, especially where you're like, okay, we get it. You're an atheist. You're trying to tell us a story about why Christianity is bad. Yeah. At the end of the day, I felt like that that taste was heavy in my mouth. But I I would be remiss if I didn't say when this show is good, it's really good. Yeah. And it's good when he's playing on the like these Stephen King like themes of slowly building this ominous tension. It is not a it's not a horror movie or show scary movie where there's jump scares. There's no jump scares in this show. It's all psychological thriller kind of type stuff when it's at its best. And the acting in it for, for the most part is really, really good. At the end of the day, the flaws for me were in the story itself. And you don't really realize it until some of the actors are gone. Yeah. For me, once Riley dies at the end of episode four or five, that's when the flaws of the story really start becoming noticeable. And you understand they were always there. And so um, least of not least of which is that he has a clear agenda that he's trying to end up with this soliloquy. He, you can tell the soliloquy happened before the story. Yeah. The soliloquy was already written out in his mind of what he wanted to say at the end of this show. And then he put a story to it. Right. The other thing, the other problem I have, and this happens a lot with stories um, of this nature that can be supernatural and, and scary, like a scary story is a lot of the characters. Most of the characters at some point, abandon all human behavior yeah normal human behavior in order to get to this part because at some point every human being on the planet would be like if they were living through this would be like yep um uh-huh this person's younger now when they should be old um healing's happening 
and we're all drinking blood, right? This sounds like vampires. Uh, yeah. the, the fact that nobody ever catches on to this when it's obviously vampires. Uh, so I didn't have any issue with that just because within, like, if you are a very devout Catholic, you have the belief that Jesus' body and blood are bread and uh, wine becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. And so you're just thinking like, oh, well... That this is an angel of the Lord. About the time they under, well, I, okay. So yeah, there, there, about the time that he can't, the people that I'm specifically referring to, the people that under that find out that the the Monsignor can't go outside during the day. Yes. So like, <laughs> the mayor and he literally kills a dude and yes. eats his blood mm-hmm. in front of them. They see it. Well, it's because that overly zealous lady. Uh, who shall not be named by me? Um, she like Bev Keen keeps spouting off uh, scriptures that it's like, oh, out of context, this actually kind of works. Yeah, I will tell you this. Um, so the 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 show ends with the vampires being stuck on the island and they've burned all the buildings down, so they have no cover to hide from the sun. So you, the, this show ends with you understanding the threat is going to be neutralized and all the vampires are going to spontaneously combust and die. And I thought the one good thing he did um, showing in a character, and, and especially in that last episode, was the character of Bev Keen, who is constantly spouting scripture and you and weaponizing it. Yes. She's weaponizing, which I, we know Christians like that. You know Christians like that. Um, so you understand what kind of person we're talking about. At the at the very end, she walks out onto the beach to watch the sunrise, and it looks like she's gonna go in peace, right? It looks like she's gonna she's having this moment of clarity. She's re- maybe even repenting. She's like, "Okay, I messed up." Like it's and it's this is all played in her face. She does a wonderful job, and then her demeanor changes, and she starts screaming and crying and digging in the sand as a last desperate attempt to try and get away from death. And I thought. Now that's actually great writing. Yeah. Because to understand where Christians go wrong is to understand that it's fear-based. When we go wrong, it's often fear-based and fear of dying, which is should be as a Christian the farthest thing from your mind. A fear based in so lack of hope, I would say also because um, you're like the only person that can save myself is myself. When we have a religion that says we can't save ourselves, that's the problem. We need God. Yeah. We need Jesus in our lives. Um, yeah, that was great. Um, so some people took like, like each character is supposed to be something literal from the book of revelation. Cause that's the last episode. That's the last book in the Bible. And like they had issues with it playing out. But if you go with that interpretation, I kind of like it just because then you can go back to the letters written to the individual churches and say, they always start off with or end with like, you've lost your first love. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So this church has lost their way, but in uh, Revelation does a good job of saying hope is not lost for you. You can do this and um, get get that first passion back, that first love. And at the very end, 
the church, after they realize how broken they got, and it got ugly during like Vampire Fest mm-hmm. on the island, um, they all start singing. They all start singing yeah. as a, vampires. By the way, yeah, when they know they're gonna die, uh, they start hymn. singing a hymn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something. Uh, there's probably also a deeper commentary that we don't have time for it because we've already gone way long, but yes, there's also probably a deeper commentary to be had here on the idea of what we think of as Christians as revival, mm. because that's like kind of what plays out in the church on the Island is they they think they're having some sort of revival with yes. miracles happening. And maybe the way we think of that being kind of flawed and open to corruption. And like at the end, I'd say it was closer to revival. Yeah. Because it was a right? changing in the heart. Right? So, yeah, even the characters who have done some terrible things in that last episode, yeah, you see some heart change that Bev Keen doesn't. Yes. And it looks like she's about to have it, and then, no, she doesn't. That in and of itself, I, I would say, it's. I think so, it's a good show. There, there's a mixed baggage to it, and it depends yeah. on what aspects you're fo- are focused on yeah. during that time. I would definitely encourage anybody to watch it. I think... Some people will love it. Some people will hate it. Like it's yeah. one of those shows. It's going to be, yeah, it's there's, there's so divisive. much there. It is dense. It's a dense show. It's complex and it's abnormal, especially for, if you're a horror movie fan, a scary movie fan, it's not overtly like that. It's more of a psychological it makes thriller. you think. Yeah. Until the last episode, the last episode goes full on yeah. Fangoria magazine, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's nuts. Anyways, Hey, we've, we've gone pretty long. Let's get out of here. We probably should have saved this for a separate podcast, but hindsight's 2020 live and learn. It's only the second podcast. Thank you so much, everybody for listening. We'll be back with another episode next week here on the pop culture podcast. We'll see you then.